to episode 253 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. And in today's episode, we will be briefly talking about movies that we saw this week in part one, and then we will jump over to part two, where we will have a recording of our live podcast, which was recorded on Wednesday, if you're listening to this on a Friday, uh, of 1925's Battleship Potemkin. We did it at Central Cinema in Knoxville. It's part of our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series. Um, and we were joined on the panel by uh, myself, Andrew, Michael, as well as William Wright, who did the score, a live score for the uh, presentation, mm-hmm. as well as Kelly Robinson, who is the curator of the silent series for Central Cinema. Uh, so please stick around for that. But we had a couple uh, movies that we wanted to talk about before we jump into that. And that includes the big release for this past week, which mm-hmm. is Toy Story 4. Yep. Um, Andrew and I caught it this week. Uh, it's This one is directed by Josh Cooley because um, John Lester could not keep his hands to himself. <laughs> and there's a lot of writers on this movie because he couldn't you know, get along with the original writers for this movie. There's a oh. lot of... A lot of issues. With Have, do you was, know much about the production history of this thing? So initially, Rashida Jones and uh, Will McCormack, I think, her, yeah. who's her writing partner, they were brought in to write a treatment for the fourth movie. Okay. And then when the Lasseter stuff happened, a part of that was that he really clashed with what they were doing, and, she, and they didn't like agree with the way he was going about yeah. handling just working. Mm-hmm. And so that was some of the background stuff. And so then Andrew Stanton and Pete Doctor and Lee Unkrich had to come in and like kind of the, they're the Pixar heads and they kind of came in and fixed you know things. And Josh Cooley took over as director. So like when they, I've not seen it. Um, I was supposed to, but I, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that what's that timeline like? Do they fix it like under Lasseter's orders? Or are they fixing it like in the aftermath of Lasseter leaving? Like they're fixing it in the aftermath of him leaving because he gets oh, he gets ousted so, in there. But they're still like we got to bring this movie. Well, out. so why? Why do they need to fix it if he's gone and he was the one having problems with the direction? Because I think that Rashida Jones and, and Will McCormick had left and they were just like, we're washing our hands of this. We don't, yeah, you know. Okay, fair. So they have story credits, but the screenplay credit is to uh, is to Andrew Stan and those guys. Yikes. So it's a whole, that's a whole history behind it. <laughs> Um, but this one picks up. I, I kind of view it. We can talk about this maybe, but I you have the the trilogy. This kind of works as almost like an epilogue of this Toy Story trilogy. Yeah. Um, we can talk a little bit about should it be made and all that stuff later. But this one, um, you pick up with Bonnie, who was the uh, the new owner of Woody and the gang. Uh, that's who Andy left them with at the end of Toy Story three. Um, they're kind of living their life with her. She's about to start kindergarten, and when she goes to her kindergarten orientation, she creates this new Frankenstein monster. This new Frankenstein <laughs> monster, anthropomorphic spork named Forky, who's voiced by Tony Hale of Arrested Development and Veep yeah. fame. Um, he uh, naturally does not feel like he should be a, a toy um, or like a living sentient being. Yeah, um, and so. Woody pretty much is tasked with uh, keeping an eye on Forky and making sure he is still... Uh, he doesn't commit suicide. He doesn't commit... There's a long-running suicide game. A lot gag. of gags about suicide. There's a lot... Oh, because that's what you look for in your kids' movies. Is, I mean, consciousness oh, is a burden. I'll give it But pretty much the story is uh, Forky gets lost. Woody is like, we have to get this back to Bonnie because Bonnie... Uh, you know, deeply cares about this thing that kind of got her through the first day of kindergarten mm-hmm. while they're on this family trip. And so while they're on this family trip, uh, they go, they, Forky gets lost at this antique store. At the antique store, uh, Woody realizes that Bo Peep, who is a character who was in the first two Toy Stories, but it's kind of put, you know, left off in the third one, yeah. um, is actually there. She is kind of this renegade toy foster person. And uh, the rest of the movie is Woody, Bo Peep, and her little gang of, of characters, who I'm sure we'll get to, trying to save Forky from Gabby Gabby, which is this uh, doll that's looking for a home right. at the antique store, as well as Woody trying to figure out if he wants to go back and be Bonnie's toy and kind of live the life that he's been living, or join this kind of renegade ragtag group of, uh, of uh, Bo Peep's uh, foster people. It's a lot... There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Um, Andrew, what did you uh, what did you make of Toy Story four? I guess a little bit. You can also preface with a little bit of your history of the toy, you know, feelings toward the franchise. Oh, well, I mean, I think my feelings for the franchise are are 
consistent with most people's feelings toward the franchise. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty uh, perfect top to bottom, one, two, and three. Uh, there were also movies that I grew up with and the characters' ages were always reflecting my age. Like I mm-hmm. saw Toy Story 3 the summer I was going off to college, so I'm very much the target audience for those movies, and they worked for me. The first Toy Story was the, the first film I saw in a theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I feel uh, a, a good connection to the Toy Story franchise. Um, in terms of this one, I laughed. I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was funny. There are a couple really big laugh moments that mostly come from new characters they've added. Uh, the characters played by Key and Peele are mm-hmm. both hysterical. Uh, and then Forky mm-hmm. uh, is is really funny in the first act of the film, though he gets sidelined really early. He does. Uh, and the movie stops being about Forky. Which you kind of think it's going to be about him. At least like it seems the... like it's going to be this, uh, this exploration of what consciousness is. And then they, we just like table that question. Yeah. Because well, let's 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 sidebar real quickly. Yeah. Pretty, the reason why I guess he gains consciousness because if you going through all the Toy Story movies, even toys that don't aren't owned by kids, as you learn like in Toy Story two, like have like a consciousness. Yeah. But the reason that Forky is conscious is that Bonnie writes her name on his little little popsicle stick feet. Yeah. And so that he gains consciousness because of that, but at the same time wakes up feeling I should not be alive. I'm <laughs> still I am trash. Yeah. And then proceed again again the suicide gags. Yeah. Out. So I have a lot of questions about this movie. One is like all the 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 new like cars universe level logistical questions about how toys are alive and oh, yeah. how their society works and you know how their consciousness all that stuff operates. I also have questions about whether or not this movie needs to exist, mm-hmm. which I, like I, I feel like we're, <laughs> we agree that it probably doesn't need to exist. No. Um, but I also was pulled out of the experience several times by my not being able to suspend my disbelief, which is something that has not been a problem for me in any of the Toy Story movies. It's a ridiculous premise in the first place. Mm-hmm. But I think the... The reason why I had a hard time buying into the reality of this movie is that it was it was it was just every five minutes impossible for me to buy that they don't get seen by a human right there's just so much moving around and, and scheming and stuff mm-hmm. uh, they're way more cavalier with like how active they are around like huge groups of people. You know, think back in Toy Story 2 when one of the big plot lines is how are they going to cross the street? And yeah. and there's that huge set piece of them just using the traffic cones to get across and it takes many minutes for it to happen. And this just feels kind of chaotic in terms of uh they're like all- bouncing on like Umbrellas and stuff. They're like yeah. throwing, throwing like tight ropes across hallways, <laughs> and you know, uh, climbing over them with people like just out of sight. I don't, I can't uh, believe that the society of toys has not been found out by humans, and that seems like a really uh, petty little thing. But it was like constantly like uh, gnawing at me, and I, I just, I felt like I was at a distance from the film the whole time. I don't know. Um, what did you think about Toy Story 4? I enjoyed it. I, I, I agree. I don't think it needed to be made. But again, yeah. I, I I know a lot of people are talking about, like, does it tarnish the the ones that the franchise or whatever? Yeah. And I'm like, no. I, again, I view those as like a trilogy, and this is kind of an epilogue. It's, yeah. it's, it's you know, kind of a postscript to, to what's happening. And no, it didn't need to be made. And it kind of feels more like a uh, almost like some sort of side adventure that you know, probably could have been encapsulated in like a short. You yeah, because they did all like the Toy Story of Terror and stuff. That, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, and so I don't know as a full movie if it needed to happen. Um, yeah, you know, it's it, the plot is much more. Uh, it plays with like kind of slapstick and rom com kind of tropes mm-hmm. rather than uh, I think at least more than it's done in the past. A lot of the yeah. the plot is centered around Woody and Bo's relationship. If you excerpt the Forky stuff, it actually could be a very streamlined rom-com about Woody and Bo Peep because mm-hmm. there is the little prologue section where they say a tearful goodbye to each other between number two and number three. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the movie is them trying to kind of reconvene. Yeah. But then the movie seems like it's not going to be about that for 30 minutes or so. So I can see the troubled production and the 
the cobbled togetherness of this thing and its structure. Yeah, I, you know, I, I it's it's kind of funny. Uh, I think that the franchise up to this point has been about, um, you know, being there for Woody's always been there for Andy or yeah. been there for the kid. And this one's almost like an empty nest situation. It's like yeah. kid's gone. Like let's uh, like you should live your life for you now. Yeah, <laughs> which I kind of liked. I was like, yeah, like the kid's gone. Right. Yeah. Bonnie doesn't seem to care about you, so uh, you know, mm-hmm. go live your life and enjoy yourself. And so, I mean, I think I, I thought it was I thought it was okay. I I'm, I'm curious to get talk a little bit about the different characters that are uh, introduced because, like you said, there's the key and peel. This uh, yeah. carnival, th- these carnival uh, plushes that are connected to each other that show up halfway through. Yeah. There's a uh, Canadian stuntman toy played by Keanu Reeves. Yep. Duke Kaboom that shows up. Um, then you have Gabby Gabby, who is the villain. Which uh, let's start with her because she's technically the villain character, but she was also one that, if you look at like the kind of insidiousness of the villains in terms, especially like Stinky Pete in number two and Lotso in number three. Yeah. She's much more tame. In well, terms she's of set up exactly like those characters. Or maybe maybe in a in almost the opposite way of those characters, where those are characters who initially come off as very unassuming and benevolent, mm-hmm. and then they have this dark side to them. Gabby Gabby uh, is introduced in almost like this Coraline-esque like body horror there's threat where yeah. she's going to there's a gothic element to it yeah i mean I, I shouldn't say everything about her introduction because it is a good little reveal but it involves like stealing the vital organs of other toys <laughs> and and then by the end of the movie she's a very sympathetic tragic figure um which is interesting uh it i mean i don't know if it necessarily makes the movie better or worse it's just a choice it, right it, yeah it, it kind of just lessens the stakes they become more of a, like the stakes are more getting back you know i think toy story the toy story movies have always been about yeah. um we're you know distant we're, we're lost from whatever person mm-hmm. we're supposed to be to and we're supposed to get back to them and there was always kind of that wall and i don't think that she necessarily like presents a wall as much as the yeah. other ones have i mean it's still they have to get back to bonnie but they're I just I think that the immediacy of, of kind of solving that is is gone because she just doesn't she's not <clears throat> nearly as uh, as like I said as insidious as a lot of the other yeah. characters become. Sid is oh and, and when she is introduced as a, a sympathetic character like reintroduced to you as a sympathetic character, uh, she takes on the central conflict of the story. So it is as we're talking about this more and more, I am more troubled by the weird structure of this thing where it's bookended by the question of like what are Woody and Bo Peep going to do first act is what is Forky going to do with consciousness and then the second half of the movie is mostly how is Gabby Gabby going to deal with not having an owner and I don't think all of these things necessarily line up Mm -hmm. in, in a in a graceful way. I mean, you could make thematic justifications for why they're all similar conflicts mm-hmm. uh, and connected to like the larger thematic arc of the Toy Story series, but it just it feel it does feel a little jumbled. I, I really liked. I listened to the Slate Spoiler Special yeah. review of this, um, and I really liked the the point that they brought up, and that's this is the first. Um, it's not the first Pixar movie, but it's definitely the first of the Toy Story movies that feels like a Disney movie. Yeah. And there's also no Pixar short before yeah. the movie mm-hmm. plays. So that is that is definitely a sign of the times. Yeah, I mean cuz it just it feels like a lot of the 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 narrative beats that these recent um, unfortunately Lasseter era yeah. um, Disney movies have, have been whether it's Frozen, Wreck-It Ralph or Tangled or uh, mm-hmm. Big Hero Six, uh, things like that. It, it kind of has a lot of stuff that it's throwing at you, and they don't always yeah. seem to kind of come together. At I, I think the second Record Ralph movie might be a good point of comparison for this. In, Except this in, one's like decently. This one's it's good. better. Yeah, it's better. It has more like genuine sentimentality to it, and all of it's that. It's not like attacking you with like Google puns and yeah. <laughs> but in terms of being just like. A, sort of a, a mess of like different loosely connected shenanigans mm. I, I think it's sort of similar to Wreck-It Ralph in that way or Ralph yeah. Breaks the Internet in that way 
Yeah, it's 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 very referential uh, referential to itself, and yeah. Then you have just the Key and Peele characters feel like referential to if you watched Key and Peele. Yeah, they they, they don't feel like they fit in the Toy Story universe. Which, no. you know, to go back to the, my point about the laughs. I think all of the things that are most enjoyable about this movie are things that don't really fit in the Toy Story universe. Like, I loved Key and Peele's gags about specifically what they wish would happen but is not actually going to happen in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, those are things that can't happen in a Toy Story movie. These are characters who don't quite fit in a Toy Story series. And then, like, there's also the Duke Kaboom character who's very funny, but he doesn't really belong in the screenplay anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Forky is great. Like, such a great idea for a character, uh, such funny execution, great performance by Tony Hale, but it ultimately feels like it doesn't quite mesh with the movie around it. Well, right? he's, like, like you said, he's sidelined so quickly. Yeah. Like, after the first... Once they... Once he is trapped by Gabby Gabby in the antique store, he's yeah. pretty much sidelined to, like, the... I mean, they, they, they never really yeah. bring him back into the forefront. And there are a lot of characters that are sidelined, right? Um, there's the... The majority of the gang. The majority of the gang, none of them actually gets to do anything as individuals. Yeah. They only exist as the gang that are always, like, in a little huddle together out in yeah. the RV of Bonnie's parents... Even Buzz Lightyear, I mean, I'm not mad that Buzz Lightyear doesn't have a central role in this movie. I think it's actually a much better idea for it to be like a Woody and Bo Peep yeah. situation. I think that that livens things up. But I, I thought that what they did with Buzz Lightyear was really weak. Like, he has one yeah. joke that gets repeated again and again and again. And it feels like they're ignoring the growth of that character over three films. Yeah. You know, like, by number two, he's basically where Woody was in number one. And now here in four, it seems like he is back to like, you know, toddler brain, toy, you know, uh, yeah. like factory, you know, what was the word I'm looking for? Factory settings. Factory settings. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, he, he's he's definitely a weak link just because they don't really know really what to do with him. They're, yeah. He's kind of and yeah, you're right. The gang is there. But it's mainly Woody and and I mean even Jesse is kind of is, is pretty sidelined from from doing too much. Um, yeah, they come in every now and then when they there needs to like a Deus Ex Machina or something to mm-hmm. to save a toy from some specific conflict. But mostly, I I kind of wish they would have found a way to write this movie and have uh, Woody be even more isolated from mm-hmm. everybody else. Yeah, because because I, I think that's how they were setting it up really at the beginning was he's mm-hmm. he's very much isolated in terms of his their relationship with Bonnie and his relationship with Bonnie um, but yeah I, I think I think it's fine but I, I don't think it needed to be made but since it is made it's okay yeah I um, think it's not uh, it doesn't have to jump in the trash so much like Forky does I think that I also like the slate spoiler special and and somebody on that podcast put it very well I'm like if I could go back in time and kill baby Toy Story 4 <laughs> I would even though I had a good time with it I just I like the idea of the series better if it's just those first three films. Yeah, and and hopefully, judging from the, uh, I guess the box office, I mean, it's not bad, but it's like, it's it's very much below the other expectations, mm-hmm. which I think the lesson in terms of Hollywood blockbusters this summer should be, hey, let's pump the brakes on just inundating you with, you know, rebooted or restructured franchises, mm-hmm. because people aren't feeling them. Well, I saw somebody on Twitter, I don't remember who, I'm sorry, made a good point about how... Avengers Endgame is already like one of the top grossing movies of all time and that was before the summer rolled around Mm -hmm. and it seems like that sort of stole all the thunder of any potential like blockbuster earnings that's true of the summer people maybe want to see that releasing it this weekend so are they really with extra content they're they're going for the what I think it's pretty nakedly them going for the number one box office of all time thing there's like a few right there's a few added scenes or something they're like adding that. they're adding a that a, movie needs no added scenes <laughs> they're adding well I think it's more like they're adding like a like an in a, a new like end credit thing oh, and new no. it's, it's it's one of the things people liked about it was that there was no end credit sequence that it actually felt like a conclusion it's you know I don't know it's going back to the old uh, the old days of Hollywood where they they release movies all the time yeah. that's how uh, Snow White's one of the biggest movies of all time it's not because it made a Bukus originally they re-released it every few months. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's what they're doing. It's classicism. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Just yes. you in that. That's yeah. what I think of when I think of the MCU. Yes. Classic yes. Hollywood. Aven- Avengers Endgame is right up there with you know Casablanca and all that. Oh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, Toy Story 4. It's, it's in fine. It's fine. It's in theaters. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather you go see that than even turn on Ralph Breaks the Internet on, on Netflix, because that's a load of garbage. Yeah. That's my take. That does belong in the trash. It, it's, yeah. But, like, it has no sentience. <laughs> um, Michael, what did you watch? I didn't watch Toy Story 4. Um, I, um, let's, let's talk about Bull Durham, because I watched that, um, it's, it's not as... Hot off the presses as uh, Toy Story 4. Uh, Bull Durham is a movie that came out. I don't have my computer in front of me, but is it 1988, 87? It's a. Uh, I range. mean, you guys know this movie. It's a classic baseball movie. Um, and I watched it uh, because one of my habits is putting a lot of movies on my Netflix queue and then not watching them until I see notifications that they're going to be taken off of Netflix and then watching a whole bunch of movies that I only halfway wanted to watch to begin with. Um, so I kind of went into Bull Durham as like, oh, this is kind of like an iconic movie. I guess in some way it would be useful to have watched it. And, and expecting something like like Field of Dreams, which is like, a, I feel like a solidly mediocre movie with like some kind of memorable elements of it. And I mean, it's it, it feels a lot the same. You look at the poster and there's like Kevin Costner there. And it looks like a Kevin Costner vehicle yeah. about baseball. And I'm like, okay, here we go. I know what this is. <laughs> and, but I didn't know what this was because yeah. first of all, it's not a Kevin Costner vehicle. It is a... Like a, it's like a, it's not an ensemble, but there's three leads who get essentially yeah. the same uh, screen time. Uh, one is a, a character by Tim Robbins, who is a so backing up. Yeah. If if you're like me and, and hadn't really paid attention to this movie other than it's about baseball, um, so this is a movie that takes place in Durham, North Carolina. Um, uh, the the Bulls is the minor league team there, mm-hmm. and so it's about a bunch of it's about the this minor league team and specifically like the kind of inciting incident is. Uh, Tim Robbins is this kind of hotshot guy, I guess coming from high school or something like that. Up-and-coming um, guy. Up-and-coming guy with a, a really great arm, kind of like Nolan Ryan-esque in that. He doesn't have a lot of control, but he's really fast. Yeah. Um, and he's a little volatile like as a person as well. Right, so like the first scene you see of him is like, this is this, is this fellow's pers- like a professional debut. Where is he? And he's not there, and all the team's warming up, and you look, and he's like having sex in the clubhouse or whatever. Uh, and that's kind of like his character. He isn't. Um, so is, is that character, and then Kevin Costner's character, who's a guy who's been in the the minor leagues for for ten years, and he's kind of the veteran on his way out. Uh, and then the the person that I was surprised to see in this movie because I, in all my like knowing that this movie existed, but nothing else besides basically the posters, is uh, Susan Sarandon's character, who's like a narrator and also like. Um, this like baseball philosophy character who just kind of baseball shaman baseball shaman right who opens the movie talking about how many religions she's tried out and they never worked um except baseball is her religion so she has a shrine to baseball and she has these rituals for baseball one of which is every baseball season she picks a new uh player uh from the um I guess the the Durham Bulls although it's she kind of indicates that she's she's been to other teams as well but uh she she picks a new player on the from the Durham Bulls to, to sleep with for the season, right? And so there's like this kind of erotic or, or romantic element in which uh, she picks Tim Robbins' character to to be her man of the season. Um, but but uh, it, it's clear that she has a lot more um, uh, I guess camaraderie with Kevin Costner's character. And so there's this kind of it's not really a love triangle because there's not a lot of energy spent to like breaking them up or romantic angst but it's it's a weird sort of like platonic thing for most of the movie um and uh i really liked it It, it's like really smartly scripted it's like really quick and funny and like i don't know i have sworn off professional sports for a very long time but i still have kind of an embedded fondness for baseball um and the kind of mythologizing of baseball as like this game of of rituals and chants and the, the movie totally goes into that. Like, there, there's just a ton in this movie about all the players, like, different rituals for, like, how to get out of a slump or something like that. Um, they keep referring to the show as far as, like, the major, like, getting brought up to the majors go. And there's this kind of almost, like, a... Don't like, they use that in, in, in Infinite Jest? Yeah, it, maybe, I mean, may, Zach, you may know this better, but maybe that's just common parlance for if you're in the yeah. semi-amateur or semi-pros going no, to the pros. When you, when you, the, you want to get to the show, that's the, that's the major leagues. Yeah. Well, right, but in Infinite Jest, it's tennis. Um, 
Yeah. It's sport. Anyway, so, but they're the whole time they, can, they, work for any they, sport. they hardly ever talk about baseball in these concrete terms. The whole thing is kind of like this this semi semi mythical thing that is like not heavy at all. It's not like Field of Dreams, which is also doing that, and I thought Field of Dreams was a little bit a little bit tedious. Um, but it, it's it's like really sharply funny and and kind of like weirdly poignant about baseball in a way that I really like. Um, I don't know, Zach, you, you said you're a fan of this movie? Yeah, well, the thing that's, that is striking about it in terms of just in, in terms of general, like, kind of comedies of the same ilk, because it is, like you mentioned, it's a kind of a rated R comedy, and compared to a lot of other ones, the characters are very, like, rounded characters, very yeah. adult rounded characters, you know, it's not like they ha- kind of have these sticks or stereotypes, like, you think of, like, a, a lot of, you know, like, the Seth Rogen character in, like, a Judd Apatow movie, right. and, and they kind of have those archetypes that they just play over and over again. But the characters in Bull Durham, like, I, I kind of feel well-rounded, like, they feel actually, like, structured as as story characters. Yeah. And I think that that kind of adds to the appeal and why you get into it, because you, you forget that this is some kind of raunchy R-rated comedy, and it becomes more of, like, a more streamlined uh, story that, that kind of transcends just being that, that kind of comedic uh, story. Yeah, and I think especially if you compare it to, like, 80s American comedies in particular, yeah. like, you know, if you watch a lot of, like, you know, Bill Murray vehicles like Stripes or something like that, mm-hmm. like, it, you know, th- those are movies that are very thin um, as far as, like, like you said, character, but also, like, uh, the kinds of humor that they're employing. Like, they're usually, like, a few kind of jokes that they riff on or... Um, you know, little set pieces, you know, like Caddyshack has like the, like the Snickers bar in the pool or there's a Baby Ruth River, but you know, there's like, there are little set pieces that are kind of self-contained jokes and that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, But this movie is kind of like this, this whole like interwoven thread of like these three characters and how they encounter the, the, the world of baseball and how their psychology evolves because of their, their stance toward baseball. And it's somehow a comedy in, in, interwoven in that in a way that's really organic and doesn't ever there's very few moments that feel like okay here's the joke set piece that's kind of like self-contained yeah that we're like setting up to be kind of like the movie's meme or whatever yeah and i you know i so i don't know i mean like i'm sure i'm not breaking new ground by telling people that bull durham is good but it's good um and i was surprised at that yeah as you said it's not going to be on netflix anymore yeah beginning of uh beginning of july july 1st so you guys have like by the time this podcast is airs, it, like three days or four days. Is it on Criterion Channel? No, not yet. But it is a Criterion release. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's worth checking out because, like, like you said, it's it's less of like the raunchy comedy that you think. It has much more. It's much more rounded than there is. A, there's a lot of raunch though. Um, there is, and there's also the token like saxophone scored sex scene that's a bit steamier <laughs> oh, yeah. as well. But so. it's the '80s, so you have. It to is have the it. '80s. It's it's, it, it's very of its time, but in a way that doesn't feel like it's limited by its time. Yeah, check it out. All right, well, we're gonna take a short break. Um, stick around though. We will be having our recording of the live podcast after Battleship Potemkin after this break. <laughs> Hey, Cinematariats, this is your co-host Lydia Creech with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematariat would like you to know that we definitely want your money. We still want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema, but now we're getting into the Patreon game, baby. We've brought on a lot of new voices to contribute to the site, and we want to honor our responsibility to compensate all these smart people for their hard work. To help us out, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary to sign up at the $5 a month level. In exchange, our patrons will get an exclusive bonus episode every month, weekly shoutouts on each episode of the show, and the ability to dictate a movie for us to cover eventually. If money's tight, we get it. There are still a few things you can do that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free to help us reach more listeners. <laughs> Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, to let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we put out every week. So, to recap review, 
Send us your thoughts through Twitter and email. Share with your friends and family and sign up to be a patron. We would truly appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. so much the central cinema for allowing us to do this um it's a wednesday night it's a 1920s silent soviet film and the fact that you all are here is kind of crazy in its own right um and i'm really glad that central cinema allowed us to do this and did not we didn't we weren't forced to watch a movie about uh young girls being massacred at a slumber party yeah somehow this is not slumber party massacre three yeah i mean i i thought it was until the movie started so I really appreciate uh, them letting us do this. Um, Battleship Potemkin, uh, 1925, Sergei Eisenstein. Um, we have here, for, for the people who are listening at home, uh, I am the cemetery host, Zach Dennis. I'm here with uh, frequent collaborators, Andrew Swafford and Michael O'Malley, and we are happy to be joined by Kelly Robinson, who introduced the film exceptionally well. Gave a wonderful introduction, really got us uh, excited for this. Kelly, I'm going to start with you, though, because I'm curious. You talked a little bit a, a bit in your introduction about how, uh, you know, most people look at Citizen Kane. Uh, I guess now it's Vertigo as kind of the greatest movie of all time. But this is nearly 100 years old. For you personally, what what about Battleship Potemkin is effective? You know, what, what about it, you know, puts it in that realm as one of the greatest of all time? Part of it is just the method of filmmaking. I mean, he, he used a, an editing style that, that nobody had ever seen before, but now almost everybody uses. The, the quick edits, if you've seen a lot of old film, that's not the way they work. They tend to have a more, I don't know film terms very well, but just progressive, straight on, linear method of telling the story. But he cuts back and forth, mon- montage editing, I guess they call it. Uh, and, and the effect of it is, is it, I don't even really understand how it's working. It's like magic. Uh, when you see so many different uh, bits of things that all come together to form a whole, it's the whole that's what's magical. Mm. And uh, it, everybody copied it. Um, I don't know if you know the film. There's a film from just a year later called Manuel Montant that we screened here. And it's a that Pauline Kael called it her favorite film of all time. And it, it, it's often praised for using that same style of filmmaking, but he, he got it from Eisenstein. That's where it came from. It was a new way of cutting a film to provoke a heightened sense of emotion. And that sense of emotion has lasted all these decades. It's still there. Everybody out here who saw it, you, you felt that. I know you did. <laughs> well, and Will's not here, and I'm going to compliment him, but I think his score also helped heighten that emotion as well. But. Yeah, the, the, the editing style, that montage style, it, it just kind of has this propelling movement constantly, and you kind of get, it's almost like you're getting caught in a stream, and you just are going down the river, and you don't have, you're completely all momentum. Um, and so, like, when that sequence starts happening, they start kind of, you know, the mutiny begins. Uh, there's just, it, 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 there's no stopping it. it. It's just this propelling motion, and it's all dictated through that that editing and through that, Kind of montage effect it's all of the directing also the editing in the, during the odessa step sequence it, he cuts so quickly between these these micro moments where you see the baby where you see the face of the mother the individual people's faces and the their fear and their uh agony and it keeps cutting quickly to seeing the the whole pulls back and you see all of the people on the steps all the people running but it goes back and forth so quickly that you get a sense of the individual stories, but also the, the big picture of what's happening to the point that you, you realize that every person on those steps has has one of those stories, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So. You, the, you kind of get a, the different personalities. I mean, you you have the, the, uh, the woman who has that very iconic image where she's shrieking and the glasses are broken. You have the child screaming with the blood on his head. You have the mother who reacts to the child. 
you have all of these different figures who you kind of come into contact real quickly, but the way he edits, um, you feel like the story is progressing, and you also feel like you've given, you've gotten this narrative about who these people are. Um, Michael, you you were mentioning before we uh, before we did this um, that you the only other kind of Soviet montage theory film that you had seen was A Man with a Movie Camera. So, kind of thinking about that one and, and, and this one, what, what about the uh, the style and the uh, this kind of effect? Um, I guess worked or didn't work for you with Potemkin? Yeah, um, I love Man with a Movie Camera. I like Potemkin a lot too, um, and I think like both of the films using the the montage accomplish something similar on like an ideological level. Like um, you were you were yeah. mentioning like all these different individual pieces coming together as a whole, and the individual pieces are all serving as parts of a whole. And we get the the idea of the individual character characteristics of these pieces, but what's most important is that they come together into a collective. Um, and for um, and with movie camera, that's a portrait of a city. With this, it's a portrait of like a like a revolution, right? You know, right. which is made up of individuals, but is uh, ultimately has its power in the the fact that they're collectively working. Um, and so I, I think that's cool. Like, man, the movie camera's not narrative, so you just get um, yeah, it's like basically a documentary of the city. Um, but this one, you get like that, like you guys are talking about the the montage is both this narrative push, but also this cumulative thing. Like the only, I believe the only two names we get are like the first. The first title card, right, where it tells us the the soldiers, the guy who's a martyr, is is the only big right. name you get, right, and so as well as an officer, yes, right. the officer who who kills him, right, yeah, and so like we get the individuals at first, and we the whole like opening is kind of like these different pieces of people, and the trajectory of the movie is them coming together, and then it's like this sustained climax once they're all together for like right, half an hour or something like that, which I think is really. Uh, effective and, and moving at times. Yeah, and as somebody who is very new to Eisenstein, I just watched two of his movies this week. Uh, I'll admit that I struggled uh, with his stuff at first because of the fact that there's basically no characters. You know, even the, the characters who get named, you see them for very small amounts of time. They ultimately don't matter all that much compared to the, the mass. And, you know, there, there's an opening title card that says something like, you know, after the revolution, the individual was dissolved into the masses or something like that. And, you know, he is really trying, it's a propaganda film. He's trying to reorient the way that you see the world. Um, we think about history usually in terms of like the great man theory of history, individual heroes and leaders kind of shifting society one direction or the other. Uh, but he's only interested in how like people as a movement do that together. At the same time, you do get some like kind of delightful character stuff I think like the uh, the um, officer who uh, who inspects the meat and is like these are oh, yeah, yeah. and <laughs> like <laughs> his glasses yeah and I think that, like like this one of the reasons this film works is that like those individual pieces all like kind of pay off um, both because of the mass of how they come together but also there's like little individual payoffs like within the montages that I think like there's a the Odessa step sequence, you know, like right. the the narrative thrust is like this this mass of people like running down the steps as they're being shot at, um, but uh, in that within that like montage, you get individual characters who like were are established at the beginning of the sequence, and we kind of follow right. them through, and and they're each of them have a sort of payoff or an arc within that, so. I, you know, the overall ideological pushes toward the mass, but I think that the movie doesn't completely lose track of the human element either. Right, there's the uh, the woman whose child gets shot, you know, you follow her through um, a couple of different shots. Zach? Well, I was just gonna, kind of moving on, uh, kind of from that point, is, is you, we, we talked a little bit about how effective this editing is in terms of this film from 1925, but I think that there are some parallels and, and some comparisons that we can make in terms of looking at it in a contemporary sense as well. So I'm, I'm curious uh, to ask Kelly, as somebody who has, has studied a lot of uh, silent cinema and, and was talking a little bit about how this is kind of this was influential for a lot of other directors, as, as you look at how Eisenstein uses it in this film, I think that a contemporary audience like us today, uh, it probably kind of, you know, goes over us a little bit just because we're so accustomed to seeing this yeah. type of editing because it's so influential now. Um, I guess, so just talk a little bit about, uh, in silent cinema, how 
this would have been such a breakthrough for these directors who are trying to uh, craft this this new medium that was completely new from anything else. saw this film for the first time, uh, obviously it was profound. We know that the audience reaction to it was was extreme. Um, I mentioned the introduction, you know, people standing up and cheering about the red flag. But but just the, the, the montage aspect and the editing aspect as far as the, how it affected people, it was new. It, I don't, I think it's hard for us to understand how new when, you know, in a post-MTV era when quick edits are, are a big thing, but mm -hmm. But that style of editing was almost difficult for early audiences. They didn't see it the same way we see it because we're used to it. And I've, I've heard about how in, in early film, um, audiences had some difficulty grasping uh, even time jumps. We're used to watching shows or films where something, you know, there's a scene and then there's a second scene and we recognize instantly because we're used to it that now they're showing us something that happened before. This is the past. But they used to, in early film, if they wanted to do that, it confused people. Mm -hmm. and that's why in old films they would sh they show a clock moving or a newspaper. <laughs> they had to. They had to because people got confused. They weren't used to it. So obviously people understood this film. I don't know if they necessarily understood why they understood it. That no, that's part of the montage. They get a feel <laughs> from it, but they maybe didn't necessarily understand why all these things are jumping around. But that, that, and that's and that's a perfect point to make. And I think that's something that we discover on this podcast as, as we do this series is you go back and watch these films, especially the first half of the series where we're working, uh, you know, pre nineteen thirty. Um, there, it's it's kind of difficult to assess the movie just because. These are techniques that we see all the time. You see, you know, a, a degree of the style of editing from, you know, in something like Avengers Endgame, which is the complete parallel of what this is. But it's 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 a technique that you're used to kind of seeing, and so I think it's just it, you you don't really know how to make sense of the revolutionary quality of it as you're watching it today. It was highly experimental mm -hmm. in its time. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I think that a lot of people, uh, you know, with this film, and we've talked, we've, we've mentioned a little bit, is, is the pro kind of propaganda angle. This, this was a part of a larger uh, kind of look back at, the, at this uh, period of time in Russia, and this was something that Eisenstein was working on. As a piece of propaganda, how did, uh, how did you all respond to that? I mean, um, I, 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 in the interview I did with, with Luca uh, for the Patreon episode, I was, I was kind of like, I asked him about how his students today reacted to it because I'm just imagining a film of this, you know, political caliber being in, in, in theaters uh, today. But as, as a work of propaganda, um, how did you respond to that? Did you, uh, did you get kind of swept up in that narrative or uh, were you a little bit more skeptical? I mean, I get swept up in it. I, I think the movie, like, doesn't really... I, I know a little bit about Russian history, but I don't know enough to like know quote unquote like both sides of the, the story here. Like so, the movie sets up where you know there's these these faceless like you know uh, uniformed soldiers just just mowing down all these innocent like women and children and, and um, stuff. And I, I guess for me it's hard not to get swept up in that because I have no context to say like mm -hmm. wait a minute. You know, and I think historically, I don't. I'm not really a fan of like the the czar and, and the the monarchy and all that sort of stuff either. So I, I, maybe if I knew enough context, I wouldn't care either. But I, I think the movie definitely like gives you a lot of reasons to get swept up, and and I, and I mean, it, it also I guess influences the way that we're thinking about it in terms of uh, this like radical left politics becoming a, a thing that is surging again. You know, uh, in in comparison or kind of to combat. The, the radical right-wing politics that is currently very powerful. So it's it's hard to like take a ton of issue with it. You're like, well, I don't, I don't know about that Eisenstein. You know, it seems like he's, um, where do you go ahead? Well, I was gonna say, that's true. Although interestingly, um, in the introduction, when you were talking, was it 1951 that you said that uh, mm -hmm. the, the committee mentioned that? I mean, that's like, you know, blacklisting is, is around the corner and, and you know, there's a lot of like anti-Soviet 
anti-left uh, sentiments at that time in like you know American filmmaking and, and maybe the Western filmmaking in general. Um, do you what what do you make of that? You know, since this is like openly like Soviet propaganda, um, uh, it, it's still pretty what like highly regarded in the West. Like, do you, is it just the power of the montage? Well, no. Uh, <laughs> don't know enough about history. I, I think, and maybe I'm digressing from your question a little bit, but I think it works as propaganda, because it works as propaganda now, not just in a historical context, in a present day context. Mm -hmm. And uh, something Will and I were discussing right before uh, the film started is that it's almost, it's amazing that this film has the impact that it does, but it's kind of depressing that it does. Because this film would not have that impact if we weren't constantly living in a world where this kind of oppression comes around in waves all the time. That's why we get it. We get it on a local level, you know, and on a global level all the time, all over the place. It's, it doesn't matter if you know the historical context of this film or not, because you know what it's about. I mean, it's, it's incredible that uh, today we're recording this on, on Wednesday. I mean, if, if you haven't been on Twitter or anywhere on the news, there's been this picture from the AP circulating of a father and daughter who were trying to cross a river from Mexico to Texas uh, who drowned in the water. And you kind of, I, I was thinking about that image while uh, they have the sequence in the film where the, the martyr sailor is, is kind of laid there to rest near the sea and all the people are kind of coming in and really congregating around him as, as this symbol of the uh, rebellion. And then of course locally here in Knoxville we have the preacher cop who gave a sermon about wanting to execute, or the government needing to execute LGBT folks. So, mm -hmm. you know, th that, that kind of, you know, the, what you said, we feel it because it, it feels very present in our, in our moment. Shifting it a long way over. Yeah. <laughs> For uh, podcast people who can't see what's happening in the room now. Uh, we have been joined by a fifth panelist, uh, William Wright, who composed a, a score and performed it live for us with the movie. Uh, so, Zach, did you have any particular questions for William? Or? Well, first, before uh, before I kind of ask something, had you seen the movie prior to developing the score? Well, um, I had seen, it's kind of like the mainstream, I had seen the steps yeah. sequence, and I think that's what everybody, I was familiar with this, the movie because of the step sequence, and then when they asked me to score it, I was like, oh, this is a good excuse to kind of see what wraps around this terrifying slaughter and it's like a beautiful it is a beautiful compelling movie i think kind of like what kelly said it, it rings a little too familiar mm -hmm. in a lot of ways yeah and i think the nature of propaganda movies is that it just depends on who you think the good guys are <laughs> <laughs> you know i think so everybody yeah every propaganda movie probably appeals to somebody <laughs> and so this one appeals to us because it feels like, you know, everyone loves the Jedis. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, unless you grew up in the, you know, like, my dad worked for, on the Death Star as a janitor. <laughs> <laughs> their, their propaganda films are totally different. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wonderful government job. There was benefits. We understand you know that. He did what he had to do. He's like, I don't agree with it. <laughs> yeah, the dental plan is pretty great. Yeah, yeah. there's a timeshare. Um, well, the score that that you that you all performed, it's it just kind of uh, it's, it's it's it seems like most of the time you're kind of ruminating under the surface, and then it those moments, you know, like the mutiny and the Odessa steps, and you know, require you to kind of you know emerge. I mean, what what, what was kind of the process that in terms of establishing the the tone of the film that you wanted to set? Well, with this one, um, last time I was here, we did the Cabinet of uh, Dr. Caligari, and with that one, we had a really tight, focused roadmap for what we wanted to do. This one came together a little fast, and so instead of trying to beat something into shape, we mostly just kind of discussed the themes of the movie and just kind of, it was a lot more ambient in that, in the, the plan, I guess. And so we had a few little themes that we developed, but otherwise we kind of like I'm lucky to have people to play with that, can kind of, that I can trust to kind of feel their way through something like this with yeah. me. And uh, yeah, I really kind of wanted the movie to kind of drag us, drag us through it because it is such, and that's the nature of the great silent films. I think it has, the narrative has, and the acting has to be 
compelling enough to pull you through it, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yeah, the process, the process was more about the movie and less about hard musical ideas. Yeah, well, well, at the beginning of the chat, we were talking about how it's about finding these individuals within the masses, and I felt like you all did a, a great job of kind of providing voices, whether it was the guitar, whether it was the violin, uh, whether it was the variety of things that you were playing. Uh, it, it seemed like you were able to kind of give voices along the way in order to kind of, again, add that emotion, add that passion to uh, the scene that was on screen. Yeah, I think this movie is so, again, like we, I guess we've all talked about together and individually by now, the, the brilliance of this movie, considering its age especially, and it pulls you into the, you know, a full, you know, a, just a face on a screen mm-hmm. all the way back to what feels like an entire ocean, you know, but everything seems to, seems to kind of fit together, and I don't know, yeah, to me, to me, the, the musical ideas that kind of came out, um, felt so natural, you know, mm-hmm. and the personalities that they kind of weave into this narrative, even though you don't, you know, we have no idea anything about the people that we experience the Odessa steps with, yeah. but we feel it with them, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's part of the brilliance of the movie is that it injects so much humanity into the, the big, you know, the, the big group, you know, and I yeah. guess that's, that's kind of what's compelling about it, any revolution film sort of. Yeah, no, I mean, any time you would hit the uh, hit the drum and it would start to tap, it was. I think you made me jump at one point just because it it, it does get this kind of rumble started. I think it was near the end sequence when they when they're heading toward the squadron. There is this kind of rumble that happens, um, and yeah, no, I know. I just think that you all did such a great job of really giving this personality to this film that's desperately trying to kind of give this these individual faces credence amongst the mass, masses. So. I appreciate that. I, uh, it's hard. Live scoring, especially live scoring with any kind of improv element, is it's difficult because there are people that are seeing this film for the first time, and you know, you know, to know that the squadron is going to let you know, let them go. So you know, like, you don't want to telegraph it, and so it's it's difficult to be in the moment and not telegraph what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I feel like this movie in particular makes that very difficult because there are these, you know, even as early as act two, I'm already, you know, my brain already wants to start to build to the steps, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. have to like let the movie drive it. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, ask one more question for the group and then we can kind of head into some Q and A with, uh, with the audience. but. We talked a bit with with Kelly before that this is a movie that has always been kind of in the top, you know, fifteen to ten range of greatest movies of all time. And I think it's a question that we always ask ourselves as we're going through this series of the canonical films of of, of history. You know, is this a film that uh, in twenty nineteen we should continue to take from and learn from and and use as a uh, as something that we should you know develop ideas from so I guess for the for the group um, do you feel that way is this is Battleship Potemkin still a, a film that needs to be studied for, for fans of, of cinema I would say so for sure um, on a again on a just a general perspective I feel like it's important to see actually way more of the historical propaganda films in order to understand you know they you know I uh there are a lot of perspectives. I, I guess every yeah. war, every war ends in a split. You know, these countries end up split. Then their their history is taught to the children very differently. You mm-hmm. know, and I feel like in order to understand the war, the different worlds, you know, that people live in, it's important to see what they're being taught, especially in uh, the more closed off countries, and to understand how isolated a lot of these, you know. Yeah these world cultures tend to be the longer they're shut off. And so I feel like propaganda films are particularly important in that way. I like, one thing I forgot to mention that I thought, I like to imagine the first time in like in the 20s that people saw that the red flag. Yeah. And how like, even now after your brain is kind of adjusted to the black and white for so long and the 
when the red flag goes up, super pumped up. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it, it's like it feels like magic, even though you like have seen every you know every movie in color. Yeah. You see this when the red flag goes up, even though it's obviously just kind of dr drawn on. It feels like oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyways, I think. And to add on to that, I think that in this country there's been so much like purposeful disinformation put in front of us about socialism, communism, Russia. I mean, like Michael said, I don't necessarily know all the sides to all the stories, but Eisenstein's side is not one that I was necessarily taught growing up, right? So that enough could be reason for to keep passing it on. Yeah, I grew up with Rocky IV. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Michael Keller. Um, I mean, I same, same reasons you guys brought up. Um, I think you know uh, Russia is both both now and then. You know when it was the USSR had a you know it was taught in Western audiences as this like uh, miserable um, you know oppressive uh, sphere where like people were basically like it, you know you watch uh, you know Rocky IV or or, or whatever. Um, and it, it's almost as if like there are like two classes of people, which are like people who are imprisoned or people who are just like mindless machines, like the dude who kills Apollo Creed and Rocky IV. Um, uh, never forget. Um, but, uh, <laughs> there are two kinds of movies: Battleship Atlantis and Rocky IV. <laughs> essentially, yeah, the the spectrum of filmmaking is encompassed by both. Um, but I think like it's important that like like as in like I mean we. I mean, this is this is not the right comparison to make, but like since we've been talking about contemporary stuff, I mean, like, I I've spent like you know a lot of this week arguing with people about like uh, immigration issues, right? And you know, the United States is a wonderful and awful diversity of opinions, and I think like like Will said, like uh, watching a propaganda film from a country in which we've only been presented with really one viewpoint, which is that its people are oppressed. Um, it's really interesting to see that like the perspective of like a why people uh you know why this government exists in the first place you know that we're taught as oppressive um because i think it's really interesting just to have have that and and useful too because you know not everyone's oppressed you know if, if literally everyone was you know I, I, the country wouldn't, wouldn't function and so like there in a country of millions of people there the diversity of viewpoints is like you said yeah one I mean, one example that I would recommend just just for perspective is Vietnamese war movies shot from the perspective of the North, which are entirely different. You know, every everything that we know about that conflict is from our side of it, and there is a whole there is a whole cinema of war films that are all like. Saving Private Ryan, you know, on a, uh, obviously on a really small, small budget, small scale, but it's it's that style of war movie from the perspective of the people who we historically see as the villains, and it's completely reversed. And these are these are narrative narrative films, just like we watch from our own perspective, and it is crazy, you know. It feel it feels crazy, you know, and. The same thing with the way you know the, the the Chinese have erased Tiananmen Square and things like you know or you know and uh, all of these corners of cinema exist where the any any historical nonfiction or reality based fiction there is a movie told from the opposite side and it feels because we're taught so much from our own side it feels insane but I feel like it's really important to understand really the mm -hmm. full the full wingspan yeah. of reality you know because these are this you know these are the realms where every generation learns things we learn things from our movies and mm -hmm. things like that and so yeah. very difficult yeah. well to get like explicitly political like the we haven't got yet <laughs> well okay more so um, <laughs> but like it, you know it, it really um to, to watch something like this is important for questions of like what we would consider like you know the liberation of countries is what we would call you know yeah. right right you know oh we we come in and you know disrupt your government and we ought to you know with the perspective of 
these people are just basically in prison and it's just the dictator who's in charge. Um, that's, a, that's a perspective that's not really served us historically when we go in and disrupt the government because we find out that like it's not so nakedly that everyone is just miserable living in this country that we've been fed as, as a, you know, a hellscape or whatever. Any questions before we uh, wrap up the discussion? Well, Kelly never got to give her... Oh, did she have, did you, Oh, I'm sorry, Kelly, yeah. go. Oh, that's all right. We're explicitly <laughs> political now, though. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> but, but your bigger question was, was on the importance of, of whether this is a film that should continue to be studied and yeah. shown. And uh, I guess my outlook on that is based on the fact that when we were talking about how this film made... Uh, lists of the best films ever made in the early 1950s, and now it's fallen a little, but it's still pretty high up there. Uh, but those, the lists we're talking about are usually the lists made by filmmakers, and film directors. Uh, and if you look at the lists of films as chosen by audiences, it's always a different list. You get Gone with the Wind as the greatest film ever made when you poll audiences as opposed to directors. Uh, so there, there is a disparity there. But I think uh, something that's interesting about a film like this. Obviously it's admired by filmmakers. Obviously it, it pioneered techniques. Obviously it uses you know, these, these great visuals that have uh, so much impact. And so obviously people who want to make films should look at a film like this. But I think it's, it's kind of a rarer thing for a film that is so beloved as a, as a filmmaker's film mm -hmm. to also have that kind of resonance mm. in general. You, you don't show something like Unchien Andalou or something to people and you know some people will like it but some people, people will be like I'm not really sure what happened there. But, but people get this film so you know it should be studied not just as uh, an example of a way to make a film but, but just as an example of how to, how to evoke emotion works on every level for film filmmakers filmmaker study and and for audiences definitely well said um yeah any questions before we we wrap up from the audience uh, is the appeal of the movie for political reasons or for aesthetic like formal reasons yeah i feel like that's that maybe a question for kelly do, do you know much about why the film was beloved was it for more the political angle or for the the formal stuff I'm not 100% positive, but I think it's telling. And I think uh, as far as you were talking about how uh, you mentioned it not polling well with audiences, and I don't know if that's true. I know those lists always tend to be different. That doesn't necessarily mean audiences don't like it. And uh, obviously we're talking about current times. Battleship Potemkin not being high on audience polls might solely be because audiences today haven't seen it. So you can't really know if they like it or not unless you show it to them. And I think whenever I've known of it being shown, people do have a good response to it. But in its time, it did have an impact. And I think it was beyond time and place. It, it was never meant to be shown outside of uh, Russia and the Soviet Union. Yeah. And uh, they, they didn't even think that it ever would be. And if you if you read about it, it, it started being shown internationally and... Uh, they're actually surprised that people in other countries really, really liked this film. It, it had a bigger success internationally, I think, than it did in its own place. And, and it's, it's kind of like the way we're talking about it today. I don't think that necessarily was because of their uh, feelings about the Russian Revolution so much as it was their own interpretation of revolution in general, the way we're all kind of looking at it now. Yeah. It's like, yay, little guy, you know. And, and to add to that point, it did have a big fan, and that was Joseph Goebbels with Nazi Germany, who said that anybody who watches this would probably turn into a Bolshevik. So, if that you know shows other sides getting something out of it, it might be worth like turning the question back. So, I mean, we've been talking about propaganda films as like you know films of the Vietnamese or films of of the Russians or whatever, but like you know America has its own propaganda films. I mean, you mentioned Gone with the Wind, which is pretty explicitly, like, you know, Southern, you know, Confederate revivalist, etc. Um, and I think, like, we might ask the same questions of our own films like that, you know, it, does Gone with the Wind pull well for aesthetic reasons or because people are behind its politics, you know, are, is a film 
you know, like, uh, I'm trying to think well, of People trying to make the argument about Birth of a Nation. Yeah, right? the, the reason why you need to watch Birth of a Nation is because they're like, Invented cross cutting or whatever, even though it totally didn't invent cross cutting. But well, let's like, say, let's say, yeah. for, for, yeah. for the hypothetical, <laughs> let's say that there is a highly aesthetically influential film that also has a particular ideology, and you know, I mean, it's, I think that films like that are are interesting and worth looking at to see how like formal qualities work to push an audience's perspective one way or another. Like uh, there are. Uh, I know this is like a hotly debated topic, but there are a lot of supporters of, of teaching and watching um, Triumph of the Will, the Nazi documentary film, to, to look at how the formal qualities of that movie like are fascist in their design, you know, and like just looking at how the movie is made somehow gets you into that that mindset. Like, oh, I am, you know, I, I wish to be led by this, you know, great violent leader. Um, so I mean. It's, I, I think that in the case of that or Birth of a Nation, like, it's at least worth picking through the theory of. Um, whether or not you're going to use it to you know, push those values is another question. All right. Okay. Well, I would like to thank you guys again for sticking around. Um, feel free to come and, and share your thoughts if you'd like to after the movie. We'd love to hear them. And uh, again, cinematary.com. Check out the podcast. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for, for sticking around with us. Thank you to Will, who had to rush out. And uh, Andrew and Michael, as always, thank you guys. Uh, have a nice night. Thank you.